There's a change happening in the way we live, the way we work, the way we spend our money and make our decisions. We are evolving to be more conscious in our actions in a way that serves the world and makes it a better place. Welcome to The Ethical Evolution. The Ethical Evolution podcast is brought to you by The Ethical Change Agency. I'm Bindi, CEO and founder, and I am honoured to bring you the stories of those who create change through paying it forward and giving back. Ethical business owners and holistic healers who are determined to create collective change in the world. Once we have a change in consciousness and through collective change, we can become one. My next guest was recommended to me by another guest, and little did I know that he fit perfectly into the ethos of the ethical evolution. When the Boxing Day tsunami happened in Thailand and the Bali bombings occurred, Peter Baines was the man they called to forensically investigate and identify thousands of bodies. From tragedy, he created hope and opportunity for many children orphaned or abandoned by disaster in Thailand by creating Hands Across the Water. Hands Across the Water started in 2005 and now cares for over 350 children across seven projects in Thailand. In addition to leading Hands, Peter is the principal of Peter Baines Consulting. Peter helps businesses build effective, sustainable leadership programs through a unique mix of leadership and corporate social responsibility initiatives. Peter was awarded the Order of Australia Medal in 2014 for service to international humanitarian aid in Thailand. There is so much depth and learning in our conversation, and I hope it helps you see the world a little differently. Welcome, Peter, to the Ethical Evolution. Oh, well, it's great to join you, Bindi. Now, um, can you tell us about your background and who you are? Yeah, sure. So for uh, 20 odd years, I was a forensic investigator with New South Wales Police. And uh, uh, basically, my job was to attend uh, scenes of serious crime, deaths, suspicious deaths, homicides and fires and and uh, examine scenes and uh, report to the coroner and the courts as to uh, uh, what had gone on. And uh, I did that for 20 odd years. Uh, uh, I worked in Bali after the bombings in mm. 2002 as part of the leadership team uh, that was sent over there to identify uh, the bodies. We had 202, 202 uh, people who died as a result of that, 88 mm. were Australians. And, and I guess that kind of uh, uh, stamped a bit of a, uh, uh, a footprint for me because it was then... Uh, the Boxing Day tsunami in uh, 2004, um, uh, which occurred, and I was called upon again to uh, head over to Thailand, and that really uh, defined uh, my career. And I spent most of 2005 either in Thailand or preparing to go to Thailand, and uh, I was leading the Australian and the international operation in the identification uh, of those who died and uh, repatriating bodies uh, around the world. And, and then in 2006, I was um, invited to uh, apply for an international secondment uh, where I worked uh, with Interpol in Lyon in France. And, and for 12 months, I was um, researching and then writing a classified paper on counterterrorism uh, with a focus on uh, what we call CBRN, which is chemical, biological, radiological and nuclear threats and trends. And um, that was supposed to be 12 months, but this comment was extended a couple of times. And uh, I spent time with the United Nations Office of Drug and Crime throughout Southeast Asia in a capacity, uh, a building capacity around leadership and counterterrorism. And, and uh, I'd go on to work in Saudi Arabia, after the floods in the city of Jeddah, advising the government there, worked in Japan and, uh, um, and um, yeah, so that was really uh, my professional career was uh, started in uniform in police and ended up uh, travelling the world 
uh, leading uh, international crisis and disaster. Wow. Oh, my God. The stuff you must have seen, seriously, like how do you prepare yourself? Like when you're heading to one of these countries, uh, you know, in the middle of a major disaster, how do you prepare yourself for something like that? Yeah, like the um, the work that we were doing, it was just a uh, magnification of what our day job was. Mm. So uh, when I worked in, on call as a practitioner, um, if a week went by where we weren't involved in the investigation of death in some way, that was an unusual week. Mm. And uh, so uh, the, the challenges faced in both Bali and Thailand um, that, that it wasn't it wasn't around complex forensic science. It was just the enormity mm. and the scale and uh, and the unique challenges. Mm. You know, arriving into Thailand, uh, um, there was the five thousand three hundred ninety five bodies that were recovered. Um, that was and remains the world's largest ever disaster victim identification attempt undertaken it was thousands bigger than 9-11 wow. and thousands bigger than anything before in identification point of view and you know to your point you're arriving into a country uh, that has been uh, decimated and uh, so um, you know flying over on a plane and it's not as though you have a lot of time mm. uh, to prepare for this kind of stuff the first teams that went had four hours notice and that included the travel time from Sydney to Canberra to board a chartered flight you know so wow. it's kind of like quickly grab a bag uh, and get to Canberra and uh, um, but you know it's it's I guess that's the unique aspects of um, of what we faced and uh Arriving there, there's a whole lot of emotions you go through and uh, you go through a whole lot of different emotions while you're there. Mm. Uh, but, um, you know, we were there to um, identify and repatriate bodies and we know that, um, you know, that was such an important uh, role for the families who lost someone. And uh, so for me, it was pretty clear while we were there and, and um and the job that we were doing yeah wow that just blows my mind the amount and the volume you must have had to process in in that time that's just huge um in both yeah instances. like turning up you know i arrived at a place called wat yanyao and uh, uh temples in thailand are called a wat a w-a-t and uh and when someone dies in thailand they'll take the body to the temple Mm. And so the natural response when they found the bodies washed up on the beach or in a hotel was to take them to the temple. And uh, this temple at Wat Yanyao um, was located north of the uh, resort area of Kaolak. And, and I arrived at this temple and covering the ground was the decomposing bodies of three and a half thousand people. And they were quite literally... Um, uh, arriving by the truckload and uh, there's you know the, no one has the capacity and the ready-made capacity to to deal with that mm. it was a, the, the bodies were just placed on the ground and you know the bodies were in an advanced state of decomposition and continued to decompose mm. and you know flying up there uh, to that that site for the first time in a helicopter I could I could smell the death uh, before we landed and it's an unmistakable smell mm. and uh, uh, well before I could see anything I could smell what we were going into mm. and uh, um, you know they were just um, you know challenges that hadn't been uh, faced before and uh, so they unique challenges certainly required unique solutions. Wow Peter. Um, so in the work that you do now um, mm. what would you say is your mission? Yeah, like all of my time now really is, um, you know, during my last tour of Thailand um, in 2005, I met a group of kids who'd all lost their parents and mm. were living in a tent. And um, uh, I made a commitment to, to support them in some way and I realised I couldn't change what had happened but it felt within my capacity to change what happened next for them. And uh, so I started a charity called Hands Across the Water. 
Mm. And the idea was, uh, and I was quite naive when I started it around the size of the challenge and how long it would go on for, but uh, uh, the idea was to uh, build them a home and provide some safety um, uh, for these kids and, uh, and build that home and 15 years on, um, that's where I spend all my time now is uh, supporting uh, these kids and uh, hopefully providing some answers. And so my mission now is um, on a contextual level. It's about uh, uh, creating a life of uh, choice uh, rather than one of chance uh, for these children. And uh, um, we measure our success by what happens when it comes time to leave for the kids. Mm. Uh, have, we, have we equipped them uh, to be able to live a life of choice um, rather than, than chance. And, um, you know, that's, that's what I wake up each day and, uh, and uh, you know, try to find answers for. And 2020 certainly presented some, some challenges to that. It sure has. And, you know, just, just um, thinking about, you know, where you've come from and where you are now, it's almost going from death to life, um, if, if we think of it that way. And um, can you tell us about, like, some of the kids that you've, you've helped and the difference it's made? Yeah, like, I think the, um, you know, I'll preface what I say by acknowledging that the best place for, for children, you know, all things being equal, is in a, is in a family. Mm. Uh, but when things aren't equal... Uh, when that uh, uh, safe environment, that safe family doesn't exist, uh, then there's very much a role for what we do. And, um, you know, that first home I built uh, was built for 32 kids. And uh, uh, within 12 months of opening it, the numbers doubled. Wow. And uh, we had kids, uh, uh, the girls were sleeping through to a bed, the boys were on the floor in the hallway. And uh, because what happened, and I've seen this repeated in all of the international countries I've worked in and uh, in in the aftermath of crisis and disaster and, you know, no better example than what we're seeing in Australia right now mm. with the, those struggling with the bushfires. Mm. Like when, when was the last time you saw something about the plight of the Australians who lost their families, lost loved ones? Um, you know, it's, it's we move on so quickly. We do. And, uh, you know, acknowledge that the that COVID has certainly uh, presented something different, but that doesn't change uh, the challenges. Those who lost their families, lost their homes, but are still sleeping in caravans here in Australia, that doesn't change their plight. Mm. And that's what I saw occur in Thailand is that um, there were plenty of uh, uh, big international charities that turned up. There was government, there was corporate, there was NGOs. They turned up. Uh, they provide assistance, but too many leave too quickly. Mm. And uh, um, we built the home and then we just saw the numbers continue to grow. And, um, and so that was the origins. But, I, you know, I think to your, your point around the change, uh, I'll, give you a, I'll give you a couple of examples. And uh, one is from that first home we built and uh, two kids I'll talk to you about. One is a boy by the name of Gain and... Uh, uh, he was living with his auntie at the age of 12 in Thailand and um, uh, there was a lot of alcohol and violence in that house. And at the age of 12, uh, they said to Game, if you want to remain living in this house, you need to leave school, get a job and pay your own way. If you don't do that, you need to move out. You can't stay here any longer. And the thought for him of uh, moving out and living on his own at the age of 12 wasn't too appealing. So again, went to school and he advised his teachers. He said, I'm going to have to move out and uh, I'm going to have to leave school. Otherwise, I'm going to have to move out of home. And they mm. saw what travesty that would be. They saw the potential that he had shown and they contacted us and said, do you have room for one more? And we said, of course we do. And uh, so again, was able to move in and, and uh, live at uh, Bantham Nam Chai, which was the first home we built. Now, it didn't mean that he was taken away from his family. It didn't mean he ceased to have contact. It just meant that he could live in a safe um, environment, uh, free of alcohol, free of violence, and he was able to remain at school. Mm. And, uh, you know, the thing was he was the first of our kids to uh, graduate from 
uh, high school. He was the first of uh, our kids to um, to go to university, and uh, uh, we supported him through a scholarship, and uh, um, he went on and, and graduated with a law degree. Wow! Uh, he came back and worked as our general manager, looking after our seven properties in Thailand, and um, and now he's studying his MBA um, on the weekends. You know, similar. Uh, we had a young girl by the name of Mook. Uh, she lost her entire family in the Boxing Day tsunami and, uh, um, and we supported her through school. We supported her through university. Um, she uh, graduated with a degree and um, she now, um, she now uh, lives in Sydney and works for an advertising agency in Piemont. And uh, she has no known living relative left in Thailand. She has no desire to return to Thailand. There's nothing for her there. Mm. And the thing when we talk about the change, when we talk about life, a choice, is both of those young adults now have choice for themselves. But importantly, they have choice for when they have children. Mm. And, you know, this has been a generational change and it's such a small impact. But you ask those kids if it's or those young adults if it's if it's insignificant or if it's small because for them it's changed their life. Yeah. You know? And and the second example I'll give you is um, you know something that continues to this day is in 2010 I was um, introduced to a lady by the name of May Phil who uh, lived in a in a remote part of Thailand called Yosoton. It's in the Isan. Bangkok and she'd been there for about 28 years um, and supporting kids who have HIV mm. or who have lost their parents to HIV. Many of the children that she would care for would be um, brought to her by government, by the hospitals, by the police and um, you know many of these kids were born into young girls and young women um, who are not much more than kids themselves uh, living in the hill tribes as stateless citizens, getting pregnant and um, with HIV, which brought shame to their family and they're giving up these children and no one wanted them. Well, Mayfield took these kids on. But the, the, the challenge that she faced was that she didn't have enough money or enough resources to provide the medicine that all of them required. And she had to decide on an all too frequent basis, which children would live and which would die and who would get the medicine and who would not, who would get the complementary medicine they needed to take with the HIV medicine, who would get nutritious food and who would not. And in the 28 years that she was there, she's buried 1,027 children. Wow. And, uh, you know, I was introduced to her and, uh, and believed that we could make a difference. And, um, and, for the past uh, 10 years, um, we've been meeting 100% of her operational costs up there and we stopped kids dying. And, uh, you know, ever since then, uh, the kids who have been there, um, they don't die anymore. Mm. You know, she still receives um, on an all-too-frequent basis uh, children that come to her as a, a last place of hope. But because of the generosity of... Australians in the main who support hands across the water were able to provide uh, the resources, the access to medicine, the access to you know, new accommodation and meet the needs of these kids. So, you know, when we talk about change, there's, you know, those young adults who are now, you know, hugely contributing members of society and will go on to make a real difference. Mm. But there's also those kids who are alive today and but for hands and but for the generous community that we have, there is no question they wouldn't be. Mm. That's incredible. That's that's huge change for not just those kids but everyone in their lives and everyone that they touch now. And that ripple effect that you've created is just incredible. Um, so you, you're talking about funding there. How, how are you funded at the moment? Yeah, so two ways, you know, in when I started the charity, 
I was working for the police mm. and so I had a full-time job and uh, um, and how I started raising money was I got invited to speak at conferences on my experiences working on and leading international teams and uh, um, and I was paid what I thought at the time and what I continue to think is a ridiculous amount of money for someone to share a story but that became the fundraising. Mm. So I would go out and speak at conferences and for companies and different organisations and they would pay me money and I used that money to start the charity. And uh, and for a long time it was just me and uh, um, and I, as I said, there was I was still paid, I was still working full-time in a job and so there was no operating expenses. And so HANS uh, started as an organisation that didn't spend any percent of donors funds on administration because there was none mm. and uh but then uh, that would that would certainly change around the costs and um but what i saw was important to donors was that uh, we weren't spending their their money on administration or fundraising but i also knew that that wasn't sustainable mm. and uh, so in 2011 i set up a company and the company is now called hands group and it sits next to the charity now, the role of Hands Group is to undertake commercial activities that raises money, not through donations, but raises money, and that money is used to fund the operation, the administration and the fundraising expenses of the charity. So effectively, it pays for the Australian staff to run the charity who undertake the uh, the fundraising activities. So we've got two separate entities and... Um, um, the the flow of money is um, is very clear. We just follow the rules of the ATO, mm -hmm. and if the if the ATO says that someone um, if they classified as a donation, well, one hundred percent of that goes into charity. If they're getting a, a fee for service, if they're getting service, uh, well, then that goes into Hands Group. And so, for the, the success of Hands Group is since two thousand thirteen in in our rule. Uh, the real way is that we've been running a, a conference series called The Future of Leadership. And uh, this year it was supposed to appear in uh, 10 locations across Australia and businesses and, and different people come for a day of leadership. And uh, we have all of these uh, amazing speakers that we've been able to connect in through my network who appear at no expense. So all the profits that come... Uh, go into hands group mm. and that's funding for us we were we would have had over 2,000 people attend this year and uh, the format is very similar to a TED conference yep. but it's based on leadership and uh, and um, that's been a success for us in the hands group in the commercial side now the charity how we've raised our money is we see ourselves very much as a service provider so we don't go out and seek to we don't call you at dinner time and ask you to make mm. a donation. We don't put photos up of sick kids and ask you to, you know, to, to tap into your guilt. Mm. Um, we seek to engage our community by providing them with a meaningful experience. And a big part of that for us um, up until March of this year was leading uh, uh, these groups into Thailand uh, on these bike rides. Mm. And this year we were supposed to have... Uh, 250 people across six different rides who are raising somewhere between $5,000 and $10,000 for the privilege of riding uh, 500 or 800 kilometres. And uh, it's it's something that we started in 2009. I've led 30 of these rides and they're incredible experiences. And it's been, you know, such a, uh, um, a great, um, not, not just a source of income, but such a, a, an amazing way to build a community. Mm. You know, they're an inclusive ride. They're not about riding as fast as you can. And, and um, you know, we have people who, are, who come and ride and, you know, they hands down say it's a highlight of their year. Mm. And it's uh, creating these experiences for people. So that's the way that we've, uh, we, we've raised our money. And to today we continue to... To guarantee that 100% of any donations go to the kids and communities, and 
and uh, Hans Group continues to fight on. Um, and uh, with uh, our ability, because all of our fundraising um, has occurred through either bringing people together, such as Future of Leadership, or taking them to Thailand. Mm. And right now we can't do either. <laughs> I was going to say to you, like, uh, no doubt COVID's had an impact on, on your efforts this year. But if it wasn't for, um, you, you know, some very smart uh, people on, on the board of uh, the charity uh, who years ago uh, set a mission to have one year's operating costs saved and banked, yeah. if it wasn't for that position, uh, we would be like a lot of charities who would have folded. You know, there was an industry report that came out from the charity sector by a, an industry body who, who surveyed charities and 32% of them said they wouldn't survive six months. Mm. Now, there's 60,000 charities in Australia. You're talking about 20,000 charities not existing. Wow. Or, you know, when you go, well, what happens to the people that were employed by those charities? What happened to the services that mm. they provide? You know, thankfully, because we were in such a good position, because we had a good board, because we, when this is just people around, we'd save the money. And uh, for rainy day, well, it turned out to be one hell of a bloody storm. But um, <laughs> you know, that, that that savings, that savings has allowed us to see us see our way through, and uh, we've you know, been rapidly reinventing and creating new opportunities. And the really interesting thing that I see is that our community within HANDS is such a supportive community and, uh, um, and it's not, uh, I don't think that what we're, we're, well, we're certainly not experiencing the fact that people are saying, I don't have the income to support you or I don't want to support charity. I need to hang on to your money, on, mm. onto their money. What we're experiencing is just the opportunities where we used to engage with them don't exist. Mm. You know, we took, um, we took our, one of our bike rides that we normally do in Thailand and, and uh, we launched a virtual experience so we said, let's, uh, so we had someone, our partners in Thailand, drive the 800-kilometre route, mm. recorded it all on Zoom, wow. and then uh, we broke it up. And uh, each morning at, at 7 a.m., then at midday, we ran a Zoom session <laughs> for the month of June. And uh, we raised, uh, you know, and here's the thing. We, 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 the idea was floated two weeks before we launched it. We launched it and uh, then we set about, you know, Create, collecting all this collateral and creating the experience, and and we had uh, we had two hundred and forty people. We raised two hundred ninety two thousand wow. um, dollars in that month of June, and um, and that was just real evidence that there's still a lot of generosity out there. And people, you know, certainly even within within our board, people were skeptical and worried that because of the bushfires, that people would be tapped out. Mm. I think there's an immense um, generosity, particularly when people can see and have an understanding and transparency of the difference that they're making. Mm. You know, you, you look at the criticism that came out or continues to come out of, of charities and uh, when they've received money and it hasn't been spent. Now, mm. that's a, a different uh, uh, conversation I won't go into, but... Um, but the, the question, the, the thing is, people just want to know mm. the money's gone where they intended. Yeah. And because we're small, because we have that, that real visibility, that transparency, um, as I say, I don't think it's a case that we're struggling with people to donate because they don't want to or they don't have the money. It's just now it's the opportunities where we used to be able to take in the time ahead and we can't. Mm. And this is it. There's there's so been so many challenges in 2020, and you know right back from the beginning of the year with the bushfires, and so many people gave money at that point. And we've been going through so much disaster and change fatigue this year. You'd think that people would tap out, but I think there's almost been a change in mindset this year where people are actually understanding what really matters. You're absolutely right, Bindi, and and I think the. Real evidence for me was that um, 
um, in the month of uh, uh, the beginning of the month of March, we had uh, uh, 60 odd real estate agents from across Australia who come together as part of a, uh, an initiative called Digital Live. And mm. they, they ride in Thailand for us and they raise all the, this money. Now, it was, um, they were supposed to raise $5,000 each. And, uh, you know, their target that they were working towards was 250 grand. Mm. Now, we have a policy uh, within hands that if you don't raise your money, you don't ride mm. because it's not fair on those that have raised their money. Uh, so it's not discretionary. It's not give it your best shot. It's, ro- it's raise the money or don't. Mm. Don't come, you know, and, uh, and um, you know, and that's, that's what it's been since 2009. Now, the Digital Live crew, the real estate crew, they were, they were sitting well below 100 grand. And uh, it was only weeks before the ride, you know, and it, this was in the height of the bushfires. And, uh, and I just, you know, sent a message out to them and just said to them, just because of this is what's going on in Australia doesn't mean the challenges have changed in Thailand. Mm. You know, the kids, the, the, their costs haven't gone down because we've got fires here in Australia, you know. But um, they put their shoulder to the wheel. They were supposed to raise 250 now, in the midst of all that was going on in supporting Australia, they raised $470,000. Whoa. Now, they did that because they were engaged, because they could tell the message. And, and this is what I see. I see that, you know, for a lot of people, they adopt a mindset of abundance rather than scarcity, rather than saying, well, I'll give, you know, my $500 to the bushfires what I saw and what I continue to see is that people go, yeah, I'll give $500 to the bushfires, but I'll also give $500 to you because that's where I was going to spend my money. What's occurred at home is something that's so out of the ordinary, you know, I'll draw an extra $500 out or so forth, you know. And mm. uh, uh, so I think, you, you know, that I think the, the, the charity fatigue and donor fatigue and so forth exists when there's not the message there's not the story there's not the transparency behind it because my my experience is when you can provide that people are generous Mm. people are caring by a very by the very core of them Mm, absolutely and i'm interested to know pete um in all that you've been through and in your work um in charity at the moment and and also in, in your police work what would you say has been your biggest challenge and how have you overcome it? Well, let's have a chat in 2021 and I'll tell you whether <laughs> I've overcome it or not because right now is the biggest bloody challenge by, by no stretch, you know. Yeah. Like there's, you know, like it, the, the things in Thailand, you know, like I, I remember sitting with one of Australia's leading pathologists and we were sitting on a step and uh, in front of us, um was uh um over three and a half thousand bodies Mm. and they were laid on the ground they were decomposing there was um they were exposed to the sun we didn't have body bags at that stage we didn't have the ice we didn't have shipping containers to put them in they were just on the ground Mm. and um and he said to me all we can do here is a token effort because of the size of it you know but 12 months later um, the international community had identified um, over 5,000 of that 5,395. And, um, you know, I think the, the biggest challenges are, are best taken on um, one bit at a time, mm, mm. you know. And, uh, um, you know, when we started with hands, like I, I had no idea what I was going to do. It's now an organization that's raised 25 million dollars that supports you know several hundred kids across thailand we have you know 19 kids that have graduated from university we've got another 20 or 20 kids currently in scholarships um you know we had these kids dying from hiv and i think sometimes if we look at the 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 totality of the problem um we can be frozen in, in our inability uh to take action you know, but um, um, I think whether it might be uh, just naivety or ignorance or whatever it is, I've just, you know, you just take, you just start taking action. 
uh, you know, the, the more action you, you take, the clearer you become. Mm. And I often say that when we started hands, I had no idea of what the, the answers were. I didn't even know what the questions were, you know, but you just start and, uh, um, and you know, and I think whether it's the, whether it was those five and a half thousand bodies in Thailand, whether it was starting an organisation or whether it's the challenges that we face now, um, I just know the more we do, um, the closer we get to the answer. And it doesn't mean that everything we do is right, mm. but if you wait until you've got all of the all of the information, all of the answers, well, someone will have beaten you to it. Someone will have taken precedence, and uh, uh, someone will hold that space. And uh, so, I think it really is the biggest challenges. As I say, whether they're the bodies in Thailand, hands, or what we face now, it's just continuing to take action. That is so true. And you know what? That's um, a bit of a theme that I've heard over all my conversations I've had with successful entrepreneurs and change makers around the world is, you know, no matter what you've got to face, no matter how big or small, just start. Like there's not going to be a perfect time and Mm. the more you sit and put yourself in analysis paralysis, you're just going to freeze and get nowhere. And that overwhelm of looking at the entire problem, like no doubt, you know, you you, they, you wanted to sit there with, with those 3,000 bodies and just go, oh, my God, this is too much for me to handle. But, you know, if you can take it a bit at a time, it's the only way you're going to get there. I think it's, you, you know, you're spot on. I think it's one of the things that um, where I found myself continued to be drawn and uh, challenged and, and let's not beat around the bush, excited by disaster and crisis mm. was... You know, what you were faced with was so, you know, it was, there was so much complexity, unknown, uncertainty, and all of this, you know, disaster. But I just loved how whatever you did, you could see the results of that so quickly, Mm. you know, and it was one of the big reasons why uh, I, I resigned from the police was, you know, I'd worked in Bali, I'd worked in Thailand, I'd worked in, um, you know, these different international uh, stages and to think that I was going to go back and be back in this uh, slow-moving massive organisation because I was in a fairly senior position at that stage where, you know, you spent time sitting in meetings deciding whether you should have a 15 or 17-inch monitor Um, (laughs) and I was just going, yeah, not for me. Mm. How do you work at this level and come back? Mm. And, uh, you know, and it was, as I say, one of the things that I've always loved about, you know, that crisis time is going, well, let's just try something and let's keep making decisions and you don't have to wait three years to see if what you, the, you know, the, the outcome or the, the results of your work. Mm. It, it's almost immediate. Yeah. And as I say, it's not, it doesn't mean it's right, but you don't have to wait. Yeah, I, I so know what you mean, like, you know, sitting sitting in that corporate world where, you know, you know you could do so much more um, and make a huge difference elsewhere um, and actually taking that leap and making that change, I think that is, that's incredible if you can do that and it's, it's what you thrive on, obviously, um, yeah. and being able to make that change is just so good. Yeah. Now, Pete, I'm going to ask you, can you define what being ethical means to you? Uh, I think it's, it's, you know, I guess it's about um, um, your actions uh, that you're happy for um, to be, to stand behind them and to, to you know, have others look at what you've done. And, uh, you know, and uh, is, you know, the work that either we're doing now or, you know, the, the work that um, uh, for my, the first 20-odd years where everything I did was, um, you know, resulting in being uh, tested on your decisions in, in courts by, you know, leading barristers in front of juries and so forth. And, uh, and I think, um, you know, that instilled a, and the fact that, um, you know, I studied uh, uh, science at university and then I studied law um, uh, you know, I've always had that um, evidence-based approach to to things, and 
Um, and I think the the ethics of 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 that is, uh, I guess it's uh, um, how others are, will view what you've done, and if you're happy and transparent about that. And you know, I often wonder. And this isn't about being unethical, but I and I'm not suggesting it. But I often wonder why um, you know some of the other charities don't um, re refuse to reveal. Uh, their costs and so forth and I go you know like if it's you know, we put all of our audited accounts on our website for people to trawl through and mm. question and and you go well you know we're just a conduit of of the money mm. you know if you give me the money it doesn't become mine you just entrust us with it to make some decisions because we're an informed position and uh so I guess it's, um, you know, just having that uh, open book approach to, uh, to, to what you do. And, um, you know, and as I said, uh, my, my, you know, first 20 years of my working career was that from the moment you stepped into a crime scene, um, you knew that someone at some point in time, um, a lot smarter than you and a lot more time would be looking over what you'd done. Mm. And, uh, you know, and if there was, uh, um, you know, whether it was even unethical or just, uh, you know, um, ordinary or, or not diligent behaviour, you'd be caught out, mm. you know. And uh, so um, I don't know. I, I feel like I've just waffled about that answer. No, but, not at all. Not at all. You yeah. have nailed it. And I was just thinking, you know, of all the guests I've had, Probably on paper, you're the most qualified to be ethical. <laughs> like, you know, with your background and your education, really um, pr pretty much all the results you produce would be based on ethics of some sort. Um, yeah, I think, you know, certainly in the sector that we're in now, one of the things I do find challenging is that the way the charity sector, and there's things that we do that I don't agree with, um, but we're forced to. Mm. and. And what I mean by that is the fact that we have uh, hands group the separate entity is is so that we can run the organisation not through donation, mm. but we can run the, the organisation as we see fit. You know, there's this massive issue within the charity sector around uh, what people get paid and uh, where the administration costs are spent and so forth, but. No one gives a rat's ass about that in private business. Mm. You know, no one walks into, you know, the, your local dress shop and, and asks the owner how much they're being paid and what's their salary and what's the rent and, and what's the profit on this dress that you're about to spend, you know, $400 on. But uh, give, you know, $200 to a charity and people feel like they then have an entitlement mm. to um, tell you how to use those funds and to expect, you know, that, you know, what uh, someone should be paid. And what it does is it, it drives either inefficiencies in the charity sector um, or, you know, how can, how can the charity sector uh, compete for the best talent when, uh, you know, the charity sector through public opinion uh, can't pay mm. our top salaries? Exactly. You know, how, does that, how does that ever how does that ever work where um, we're in that position of operating on a level playing field, you know? And I think, uh, I think it creates a, you know, a really difficult space um, because of that nature and because of um, the way that people feel what they're entitled to when they uh, support a charity as opposed to, um, you know, just giving money to someone else. It's like this mm. whole different, you know, playing field that just doesn't make sense. Yeah, I, I totally know what you mean. And I've um, I've spoken to so many charity founders here in Australia and so many of them don't get paid. They don't take a wage. Um, and you think, you poor buggers, like you are helping so many people um, just to stay alive and, you know, you're not even helping yourself. And some of them have almost ended up homeless themselves. So, you know. You know, it's like you, you spoke about entrepreneurs and so forth and, 
And uh, like if, if you and I decide that we're going to go into business together and we have this cracking idea, you know, and, and uh, we, we do a, 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 a capital raise and we raise, you know, $2 million to pursue this idea and, and uh, people, people commit because they think they're going to get a return. If we operate in an ethical way and the business doesn't succeed, well, we're called entrepreneurs because we had a go. <laughs> You know, yeah. if you give me $2 million, though, and with the charity space and I invested in something that fails, well, I'll, I'll be, you know, on the front page of the paper called a crook, a criminal, mm. you know. Mm. And it's, this, uh, it's just this different playing field. And, and we found a way to, you know, I think the structure that we had, it shouldn't need to occur. Uh, but uh, I can't change public opinion on that level. So we just operate in the best way where we go, all the donors' money goes here. You have full transparency of it, mm. you know, and uh, then we'll operate the business in this space where people feel like, well, you know, then I don't have to account for, um, you know, what we're doing to generate funds. Yeah, and I think the model that you've got is so great and there's so many charities that could learn from you in that space. As as painful as it is to manage, um, I think, you know, the governance in Australia around charities really has to change because it, it really is making them hamstrung and not letting them succeed like they should. Yeah, and I certainly don't. I don't advocate that our model is the best. No. It, it just works for us, mm. you know, and it's what works for our donors. I, I think what... Um, you know, we get too caught up um, in in this sector and and the public and where that where that edu- where that's come from, I don't know. But this bias around what is spent on administration, that I think part of the, the sector doesn't do itself well when when people hide it. Mm. When you've got big household charities who refuse to disclose it, mm. you know, well that that creates scepticism. Yeah, you know, people then ask the question, well, why won't you disclose it? Mm. And um, you know. If we had, uh, you know, we had barcodes on a can of soup that tells you how much sugar, salt, flavour and everything else is in a can of soup, if we had something similar in the charities that we just said, here, let's, let's just all operate on the same field. If you have tax deductibility, these are your requirements. Well, then, you know, perhaps everyone would start to uh, uh, trust a bit more mm. if, if the information was there. You know, when we hide the information, well, then we create an impression that something's not right. Exactly right, yeah. So it, it might be hard at this point to answer, but what are what are your future plans for the charity? Yeah, like up until um, uh, the beginning of this year, well, up until probably March this year, we had some really big plans. The first was um, uh, we're building a, and it's fun, it's uh, built, it's about to open, a learning centre at Yossetan and um which is the HIV home and and uh, the model of that learning centre is it'll operate for as a um, as a preschool uh, during the day and uh, so kids who don't have access to that early childhood in those formative years because of you know lack of money or lack of um, uh, citizenship or so forth and they're missing out they might be with the itinerant workers who are we're in Thailand illegally or so forth, and their kids miss out on school. So we're creating an, uh, uh, we've built this uh, facility. Uh, but the, the real thing I love about it is that um, uh, once the doors close for the little kids, well, then uh, we push aside the little tables and big tables come out, and then it becomes um, adult uh, uh, learning for the older kids. Now, what we're doing is... Um, uh, working with a couple of partners um, and we're providing digital education for these kids that lead them directly into jobs. So it's around coding, it's around different technology um, uh, uh, skill sets that, that are in demand. So we, we, we don't provide training for something that leads to a certificate but no job. Yep. And uh, it's not about qualifications it's about uh, direct training that leads to employment so uh, we've got a, a partnership with a, um, uh, a, a rather large business in in Thailand who has given us uh, a, an agreement that we uh, we provide the training for these kids therefore we can uh, then undertake 
uh, uh, this business work. Um, the kids will then be paid and then within a couple of years we'll be able to set them up in their own business. So uh, that's um, certainly one of the projects. The other projects we were uh, very close to the start of a hospitality training centre down in the south. Uh, so in the, the area of uh, Kaolak, which is the um, the area where the tsunami was worst affected is a tourist area. Mm. And um, uh, the biggest challenge the hotel space down there is getting good staff and uh, getting trained staff. And so we've got a centre there that requires very little capital investment to make it fit for purpose uh, that we will then operate as a hospitality training centre. So providing opportunities, not just for our kids, but for the community to be upskilled that will lead to, to greater employment opportunities for them, which leads to greater income, which leads to a better standard of living for them and provides a service to the uh, hotel industry, um, which, is, uh, which is not there uh, right now. Um, and then finally, the, uh, another project was uh, we had the government uh, come to us and uh, um, on the work that we'd done, they offered us uh, a school which has been empty for a couple of years because of low attendance rates. And, uh, um, and I looked at all that we do. You know, we provide access to school, to university. We take care of health care. Um, we provide training opportunities. The one thing that's missing, Bindi, if we're completely honest, around what we provide access to for the kids is sport mm. and uh, what kids, um, you know, don't love support and how important is it to them in their, into their growth and development. And so I said, uh, okay, well, let's build a sports academy and, uh, um, and we've got the land. It's a beautiful lot of land, but it's going to take some real capital investment to mm. turn that around. And so sadly, um, you know, I'd had some, investors there who looked at it with me and uh, uh, could see the dream. I've had some great contacts with um, high-profile sporting people here in Australia who are a thousand miles an hour behind it with me. And yep. uh, But that's all come to an end right now um, and that'll take some time before I can um, revisit that one. So mm. uh, I'm disappointed about that. But on the good side, the the training centre um, will be up and running uh, within the next couple of weeks. Wow. You don't do things in halves, do you? No. <laughs> you must, you know, feel so much reward in what you do. Yeah, you know, like seeing, seeing the kids graduate from university, um, you know, seeing uh, the kids who come to Dan Home Hug in such a, uh, so sick, mm. you know, and, um, you know, where they're, they're being, un, you know, they've been given up, they've been left at hospitals, you know, these young mums um, have abandoned the kids and, you know, there's some absolutely horrific stories that I don't share because I think people wouldn't believe me mm. if I shared these stories and, and to see the opportunities that kids have, to see the difference that can be made. But equally, Bindi, the thing that um, I love just as much is the, the strength of the communities that we create here in Australia mm. and in New Zealand and our supporters. And, and we saw that with the virtual ride that we ran in June, you know, how they responded and, and you know, this global community um, who are, there's so many who are just, true friends mm. and that's because of what we've been able to create um you know collectively and uh, so there's immense uh, immense satisfaction that comes from uh from those areas for sure you're a karma millionaire in my book I, i'm going <laughs> to give you that one now how can we support you um and uh, get behind what you're doing yeah, I guess, um, um, you, you know, the thing is it needs to, and I appreciate that question, um, but it really needs to be something that makes sense mm. uh, to the listeners, to the podcast. And and if they wanted to have a look, there's two two real areas I'd direct them to. 
Uh, one is um, the future of leadership.com.au. Mm-hmm. And that's where we provide all of our leadership development and uh, membership programs and conferences and so forth, which is that, you know, as I said, we have businesses who engage with us uh, because of the value, not because it's supporting um, charity, mm. you know, and, and, and we've been very, very mindful in going down that way because uh, we wanted to make sure the identity of that stood out first and foremost. So futureofleadership.com.au or handsacrossthewater.org.au is a charity. Mm-hmm. And, um, and if people are interested, they can obviously connect in all the typical ways uh, that they do and, uh, and check it out and see if there's something that uh, resonates for them. Um, we're going to share those links um, on, on Facebook and uh, get people's eyeballs on that one for you. Now, I've got the final big question for you, Pete, mm-hmm. and I can't wait to hear what your answer is. Mm. What's the change you'd like to see in the world and how can we bring it to life? Um, I think if, um, I guess, you know, when I think about um, the change uh, that I've seen and the positive way is if you start from a position of doing something for others without an expectation of reward, mm-hmm. uh, the reward comes. Absolutely. You know, we, we, we all need um, to do well. And, um, you know, I've written a couple of books and, and my second book was called Doing Good by Doing Good. And it's really around how... Uh, uh, creating a blueprint for how businesses can turn corporate social responsibility into a profit centre. And, um, and because if they do, well, then the charity sector benefits more, mm. you know, and, uh, and there's, a, there's a belief that we shouldn't and people go, oh, no, that's not why I do it. I go, no, that's bullshit. You just haven't, <laughs> you know, arrived at the point where you think you can say that and it'd be okay, mm. you know. But uh, I think if... Um, I think if we, and this is certainly the philosophy with hands, is that uh, uh, we've always started from the point of saying, how can I provide value to you um, first and foremost? So Bindi as an individual, as ethical change agency, what can I do to support you? And if I do that, I know it comes back. Mm. Just this morning, and um, um, I don't know if I can, well, I'm going to say it anyway, but just this morning, <laughs> we've decided that uh, uh, for anyone in Victoria, uh, we're going to create free access to our annual membership program for the duration of, um, of lockdown. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, which is a, a program that's, you know, it's $900 a year. And we're just going, any of our community in, in Victoria who are now now backing off down for another six weeks so many of them who are now out of work who whether temporary or permanently mm. um, without that purpose and I just know and we were out uh, this morning and seeing the the sunrise on the beach and just talking about what we could do for our community in Victoria because we've got so many wonderful people down there and we said how about this Let's just give this stuff away. Mm. Let them have some time to, you know, hear from amazing, inspiring people. And, and um, you know, and I think that served us really well. So if, if it was a, another long-winded answer, but uh, <laughs> I think, you know, if we, if we can start from a place of, uh, of generosity, um, then we all do well and, um, you know, when I started hands, I couldn't have been in the worst position in my life mm. on so many levels. But uh, by doing so much for others, uh, I'm richer in every measure of my life uh, because I decided to start hands, you know, and uh, um, yeah. You are one amazing human, can I just say. And I love how you just casually threw in the air. I just wrote a couple of books, (laughs) just a couple of books. (laughs) Peter, I can't thank you enough for joining me. My pleasure. It's been a a really, a really cool chat. I've enjoyed, uh, I've enjoyed the chat, Bindi. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Ethical Evolution Podcast. If you're an ethical business owner, change maker or holistic healer who's determined to make a change in the world, 
and you need support to spread your message, visit ethicalchangeagency.com to collaborate. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonise your mind, body and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together we explore vibrations, frequencies and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here. And I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric House Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. Electric acid.